Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am looking forward to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Richard Harris, founder of the Harris Consulting Group and currently director of sales consulting and training for Sales Hacker and regular speaker at various Sales Hacker events. I heard Richard speak at one. Richard, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. How are you, Andy? Thanks for having me. Well, I'm doing great. So where do we find you today? In San Francisco? Yes, uh, actually out in the East Bay of San Francisco. But yes, I'm, I'm in the Bay Area today. Uh, New York was where I was last week, and I don't know where I go next week. <laughs> so it's one of those uh, one of those uh, lifestyles, huh? It is. It is. It's fun, and it's great, and uh, and I love it and wouldn't change it for the world. But uh, there's a little bit of you know creative chaos, as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. So we'll take a minute beyond what I just did and introduce yourself a little more fully. Tell us how maybe how you got your start in sales training. Yeah. So um, uh, I started in sales training about three and a half, about three years ago, actually. I think this month. Oh, it's um, been that. Okay. Yeah, uh, happy anniversary to me. Um, and and like most people, I never thought I'd be a consultant. I was working for this great company called Mashery um, that was you know building an, an SDR team, and you know that was back in about 2011. And just through the the state of startups, they went through an acquisition phase and was acquired by Intel. And at that point, I built a sales team and then took over sales ops. And then Intel didn't need another sales ops person. And Mashery, you know, they they did very right by me and, and hugged me out the door. And um, you know, made sure my family and I were 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 okay. And and so there there are definitely no ill feelings. Um, and then about three months after that, I had someone pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, can you come help me solve this problem in Austin? And I'm like, sure, not a problem. Next thing I know, I'm flying to Austin every month in the month of June or every week in the month of June. My first week flying back, I'm sitting next to a guy, strike up a conversation, turns out to be Nick Meta, who's the CEO of a company called Gainsight. And the next mm-hmm. thing I knew, I had I had two clients, right? I'm, I'm using a Yahoo email address, <laughs> have no website, and I've got people, you know, paying me for my knowledge. So I I looked at my wife when I got home and I said, honey, I, I think we should make a go of this. And um, I literally, you know, the, it found me as much as I found it. Sure. Um, that being said, you know, all throughout my career, my favorite part of being a manager was teaching people. I loved the ability to 
take someone and help them build their craft and hone their craft so that they could provide a, a greater lifestyle for themselves. Uh, there are many people who go into sales management who think it's this glorious role when in fact it's not. Um, and so for me, I actually enjoyed the management side of things, not from a control thing or a power hungry thing, but this teaching and education piece and helping people achieve things they never thought they could achieve. There's exactly. Like, you know, there's some level of a, I don't know if it's altruism that's that's in it or, or or what, but that's how I sort of fell into management as a whole. And then it just sort of parlayed itself through life and the way life rolls out. And all of a sudden now I'm a consultant. <laughs> With all that that entails. Yeah. So, so let's talk about something that I think would be really interesting for a lot of the audience members because you know, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs, we've got uh, sales leaders, mm-hmm. we have salespeople. Is and something you talk about on your website, which I thought, okay, well, this would be a great topic for conversation. One is you say that companies need to understand the difference between a sales process and a sales methodology. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, that's a great sort of global question. So let's <laughs> let, let, let's start because I think it is is very relevant because I think yeah. those two oftentimes are conflated. So let's start just to ask the question: Why do they need to understand the difference? Well, so it's. <sighs> They need to understand the difference to understand sales and probably even at a higher level, even further upstream, uh, depending on the the makeup of the of the ultimate leader at the organization. Oftentimes they don't understand sales and that's okay for the same reason that I have no desire to be an engineer and figure out how to code something. Right. Like that's not my strength. And I recognize that. Um but I certainly want to understand how that coding can affect what I'm trying to sell and what it takes to build it and how long and all that stuff. But, but so I always sort of start with people to make sure they understand the difference between a process and a methodology. And in many cases, they confuse the two. So tell us the difference. Yeah. So in my opinion, right, a sales methodology is something that you subscribe to, right? Um, you know, you could call it the triangle offense in the NBA. Um, you could call it um, the West Coast offense in the NFL. That's a that's that's a, a methodology, right? And there's several of them out there, right? There's 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 Bant selling. Um, there is Sandler sales, spin, spin selling, all that kind of stuff. I've challenger, even created challenger sale, challenger sale, right? I, I love that one because that's that's basically you know I I paraphrase that one into how to tell your sister she has an ugly baby. Um, so, um, and not that all babies are ugly. So please, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a podcast. We're trying to have some fun. Um, so. So I've even created my own methodology uh, called NEAT selling, N-E-A-T, which stands for need, the economic impacts of those needs, access to authority, and timeline. Those are the things you have to qualify to get a deal done, right? And I don't care what you're buying. You can go out and buy a TV. you got to go through need, the economic impact of that need, the access to authority. Who's going to say, yes, you can spend the money, and, and of course, what's your timeline to get that that device. So that to me is a little bit of a methodology, a process. Um, so it sounds like you, you had a clever restating of the band. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, 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 Bant was done back in the, I want to say the fifties or sixties originally, maybe by IBM. Um, and it matters and it still works, but nobody follows that process. And Bant, 
you're supposed to follow budget first. Hi, who has the budget? What is the budget? You know, who well, controls the budget, right? Actually, but nobody does that. No, and Bant's pretty irrelevant. I mean, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago, I think in early 2013, actually, that said that in the business-to-business space, that only 21% of major purchases are budgeted in the year they take place. But take, yes, and even more so in the startup community that I'm in, in the SaaS world, because oftentimes the technology is so disruptive, it didn't exist. Right. Uh, And so I think that's that's a big piece of what's happening in the space. So, yes, I I see Bant as being irrelevant. And and so I just sort of put my own spin on it. And and if people want to read it, they can go read about on my website. Um, uh, So that's neat. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. Um, That's clever. It's neat. I mean, that's a neat sales process. Okay, I'm going to be saying that. So, uh, (laughs) so. So, okay, so that's your methodology. So what's the process right. then? The process is actually defined based on what it is you're trying to sell, right? Depending on what your technology is, your product, your service, right? So understanding the different stages that um, the buyer goes through, not just from the buyer's journey perspective, which always exists, but what it takes to get your deal done, right? If you're a half million dollar uh, annual contract, like a SaaS play, well, you're going to have different kinds of a different kind of process than someone who's selling, you know, a service that's five hundred or a thousand dollars a month. And making sure you understand the nuances between those different types of sales processes really matters. And understand what it takes to get your deal done. Um, and then, so for me, it's it's really wrapping the methodology around your process. So once you understand what your process is or what you think your process is, um, then making sure that you can go through all those those critical examples of neat selling, need economic impact, access, and timeline. Um, so that that's the difference for me. So the the uh, in the world of a chicken and an egg, mm-hmm. the whichever one comes first is the methodology. Uh, you know, a little bit, right? So I've, I've even described my, my sales, uh, you know, my neat selling as, as both a process and a methodology, right? That you can, in, you can incubate the two and, and get one thing out of it. Um, I doesn't, do. Th- doesn't the methodology necessarily dictate the process though? No, no, I don't think so at all. Right. Uh, for the same reason that suppose someone disagrees with my neat selling methodology and they're like, no, we like Bant or, or we like Anum, which comes from InsideSales.com, which is another good methodology. Um, one doesn't necessarily um, predict the other, in my opinion. I think knowing your methodology and, and having one that you subscribe to that makes sense for you will help you make sense of the process you need to create. So I do lean towards the concept of, of understanding the methodology. But keep in mind, I go to clients all the time and uh, you know, I'll sort of throw my methodology at them to get them to sort of look at it in a different way. But they don't have to believe in my methodology is the only methodology. I think that that's um, that, that's a big thing that I see in the sales training space, where many sales trainers will say, "Well, if you don't do it my way, then you know it's not going to work." And and I'm the complete opposite of that. Is like there's more than one way to make this thing happen, right? This is just the way I've created, and it seems to resonate with people based on how the buyer's journey has changed in the last three to five years. Well, you raise an interesting point. So, if, again, for people in the audience listening to this, is is it important as a sales organization to have a common methodology that everybody uses? 
I think so, because it helps in the sense that um, everybody can speak the same language or on the same page, um, and, and it does help. Is it required? No. Right? Like, you know, again, like it, it's not a perfect science. But what I often see with organizations is they'll say, hey, Richard, you know, everybody's doing okay. We've got a good, you know, sales team and we've got a good sales process, but everybody's kind of doing it their own way, right? They're all coming from these different backgrounds in sales and now they're at this new startup and and we've hired them because they've been successful and they continue to be successful. But gosh, it, it, it just feels like everybody's on their own path. And that's great. Like, I, I'm happy that that occurs and I'm happy for people to to make their own decisions. What I try to do when I come in is to really say, okay, everybody, Let's talk about this path. Does this make sense for you guys? Does this apply for what you guys are doing? Um, or ladies, I shouldn't always use male-dominated terms. You know, does this work for the team? Um, and most of the time they do. There's very few people who are like, no, neat selling makes no sense to me. Like, I, I don't think I've ever heard that. Um, and there, there might be too much group think in the room that someone might not do that. But, but again, the goal is to get everybody on a common language. And when they hear things like economic impact or access to authority, as opposed to just defining authority, there, it resonates with people from what I've seen, that they're, they're understanding this is a different approach to um, a fresh approach. I wouldn't say different, a fresh approach to the same thing they've been doing for years. Well, the benefit of the common language then, though, is that when you're really operating as a manager, mm -hmm. then when people use specific terms, that everybody has a common understanding of what that means. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of it as a whole, right? Is that now we can all speak together and, and as a, as a cohesive unit and still do it in a way that people are independent in their own thought process, because that's the one thing I don't want salespeople to do is that there is no one silver magic bullet. Um, if there were, we'd all be retired, but I want to give everybody, you know, the, the guidelines and the rails to stay in between, but also allow them the creativity to be their own salesperson and do the things that they know make them successful as well. Right. Which is one of the things that I see that is oftentimes a problem with a company as, for instance, I'd somebody. Hire me, mm -hmm. hire me to come in and, and give a keynote at a sales meeting. And, you know, they really wanted to edit what I talked about beforehand because, you know, we use spin and we don't want you mm -hmm. to say anything that might contradict anything that's in spin. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, well, you know, there are times yeah. where it's really a good idea to contradict some of the things That's, that you're doing. Those are my favorite conversations, <laughs> right? Like, like, and, and I say this to people all the time is like, Hey, I think it'd be more engaging if we had a dialogue where we challenged each other a little bit. That's where learning occurs, right? Like that's where sometimes you have to break it just to make sure that what you're doing is right. Um, so I, I encourage those conversations and, you know, I've had people say, well, can you do it this way? And I'll just politely say, no, but you can go hire them. Yeah. Well, I've done that some, as well too. Yeah. With, and you don't want to say it as jerky as, as I just sounded there, but you know, sometimes that's what happens. Well, yeah, I think that's really important for managers understand that that methodologies you know they're they're a guideline right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i mean it's it's not uh, it's not something you're living your your life by on a step by step basis i mean i had a friend who's a sales trainer as well and had a uh, uh company call him about coming he had the call center he, he specialized in call center training mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and not b2b call center but b2c right. call center yeah and they said okay great i like what you're saying now but the thing is it has to be, can you train our people on the challenger sale? <laughs> in a call center, right. Exactly. In a call center for B2C products. <laughs> right. 
And right. he's just sitting there rolling his eyes. But and he said no, and they, you know, he didn't get the deal. Right. No, that happens. That happens. And I believe me, I've run call. I've run the call center that calls to sell you the newspaper subscription. So I appreciate <laughs> the challenge he may and have had. You, and did you use the challenge or sale? Oh God, no, <laughs> no. So, uh, so let's talk about sales processes. Then. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the methodologies, and mm-hmm. and I mean, so our sales. It's interesting. So for me, I think you know, the process t- seems to be more relevant the more transactional the product and less relevant the more complex and the longer the sales cycles get. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I'm not sure I, I fully Well, because I think that the longer the, the buying process or sales mm-hmm. process is that the less you can really have tightly defined steps. If you've got a 12-month sales process, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't define all the steps between now and the end, right? You can put their stages... But, mm-hmm. but there aren't steps in a process. But I, I, so I would, I would, I would disagree a little bit with that, and, and I'll give you some examples, right? And 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 it maybe we're saying the same thing in a different way. Is that um, if you've got a twelve month sales process, right? It's usually a complex sale. There's lots of uh, people involved. Um, there's lots of decision makers. So you can do what I call follow the bouncing ball, right? Have you had your discovery call? Well, yes. Well, what are the five things you need to know in a discovery call in a twelve month sales cycle? Right now, here's the thing most people don't understand. A discovery call, as we say it, implies there's one phone call. However, discovery itself could be a process. Right? Oh, discovery mm-hmm. is a process. Right. So, so I always sort of look for, for lack of a better description, as, as you said, the stages and defining the stages is um, what is the exit criteria? What information do you need to have in order to go from, you know, uh, discovery stage to uh, development stage, to negotiation stage. There's certain certain things that you should have discovered or uncovered or, or discussed. And what are those pieces? So I think you can actually define some of those things. So, But I think so, you really, I, I sort of flip it on its back mm-hmm. and say, okay, what information does the prospect need to move from one stage to the next, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I define it on the stages because it's really not, again, you know this, it's not about us, it's about mm-hmm. them. And the way people make decisions is you know, a very linear process, and mm-hmm. they're not going to move from one stage to the next till the information requirements of one mm-hmm. stage have been satisfied. Yes and no. Um, so, for example, and that's why I use that word exit criteria, right? So that I can certainly define, and, and I think you know, I think you've even educated me a little bit here, is that I would define these are the pieces of information I need to know to have exit criteria. But what are the pieces that the customer needs to know or the prospect needs to know for their exit criteria? And I, and I think you can try and capture those things, right? So aside from pain solution resolution, right? Like aside from that, you know, oftentimes there's a technical deep dive, right? There's a implementation, there's a proof of concept, there's, you know, there's all these sort of more specific things that need to occur. And what I've also learned and what I've seen too is that you know, it's very possible that you're going to define these eight things that need to be discovered in your discovery phase before you officially move it to the next stage in your sales cycle. However, just based on the way human beings are, sometimes we get a little bit of ahead of ourselves, right? There may come up a question around budget or contracting process or red lines or any of those things before you even get to, you know, a full demo, right? Sometimes people say, well, you know, 
for whatever reason, they'll say, well, what does your contract look like? Or, you know, we need to put this through legal before we do anything because that's their own internal piece. So again, I agree with you. All this stuff is very linear and people should do their best to establish which pieces of information need to be understood and agreed upon by the prospect and the sales rep in a linear fashion also recognizing that a couple of times you're going to get ahead of yourself, right? It doesn't mean that just because you started talking about pricing means that you're in the negotiation stage, right? Exactly. Um, well, that you should be on the qualification stage if you're doing that, right? Yes. Yeah, but qualification around pricing and negotiation around pricing are two different pieces. Exactly. So again, it's you know I, I think we're saying the same things that it is somewhat of a linear process um, in some ways. However, I'm seeing the linear move away a little bit, um, and it's more just becoming these are all the check boxes we need to discover, right? These are all the things we need to mark off in the check boxes uh, before we can move forward to close the deal, and then over time you can analyze the check boxes and when those check boxes came and start to define a more specific sales process um, and start to build some some content and and, and other collateral or or sales training around that piece. Yeah, and my point was just the linearity begins to get really wobbly the longer the sales process. Absolutely, so, for sure. Because it's you know at that point it really is less about discrete steps and more about intuition and experience to help get the prospect to the finish line. Um, all right. So another question that I get asked a lot is you know and you deal with this as well as you know how you help companies develop a predictable revenue pipeline. Right. But you know so much of what's written about you know, predictable revenue mm -hmm. really is, is more transactional in nature. Mm -hmm. So for companies that selling products a little more complex, longer sales cycles, how do you help them develop a predictable revenue pipeline? Well, I think the nice thing about those bigger organization or I'm sorry, those bigger sales cycles is that you can start to specialize, right? And, you know, I know you're, you're referring to Aaron Ross, who's, who's a good friend of mine and, mm -hmm. and you know, very wise in what he created. At Salesforce, and, and and of course was smart enough to write it down before the rest of us, which you know is awesome. <laughs> but um, but those bigger organizations, as you can start to specialize, right? You can specialize in this top of the funnel activity, and that top of the funnel activity could be marketing, which is inbound and demand generation, and it could be top of the funnel SDR, sales development reps, lead generation, outbound cold calling those kinds of things. Um, and then you can move into the middle of the funnel. So um, most of the organizations I'm speaking to today see the value in that sort of separation of church and state, right? Um, I've talked to a couple of companies who are still a little behind the curve and, and they'll say, um, you know, we have 25 sales reps and three SDRs. And I kind of go, well, you guys are way upside down. And I say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you, know, you should have 15 SDRs and 10 sales reps. They're like, why would I do that? And I said, because I guarantee you, you can rank those one to 25. And the people in the, the, the last 10, if they're not hitting goal, you're just wasting money on their expensive base salary. You can replace them with younger, hungrier people who will just fill the pipeline. And you should fill the pipeline with meetings and activities that are worthwhile to the point that your sales reps are saying, I can't handle any more meetings. And I've seen it happen, right? And let's face it, sales reps don't want a cold call. That's not what they're hired for. Um, and we might be going off on a tangent, but one of the things I see all the time is that, you know, we're hiring people to do things in sales, whether it's closing or lead generation, when in fact, people are actually doing so much other activity around what they should be doing that they're not actually doing the job they were well, hired for. Right, right, right. 
I mean, that's sort of the, the constant in sales, right? The constant tension that exists is, you know, <laughs> between the, the bureaucratic non-sales demands and the amount of time they're actually spending selling. Yeah, and 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 now there's enough studies out there. I want to say that God, I, I was doing something with Philosophy the other day, and and they brought up a study that a salesperson's activity—they're only spending 37 percent of their time actually engaged in the selling process. Right, everything else is around the process. So, you know, we broke that down at the SDR phase of like, you know, if you've got these lead gen reps who are supposed to set appointments, and you know, you, there are still companies out there who are making the lead gen reps find their own leads, right? Build their own list, right? Yeah, that's a colossal waste of time. I mean, you can upwork that stuff. It's so inexpensive now, um, and and I think the challenge is that upper well, just, management and just to define that for people, listening, mm-hmm. upwork meaning you could outsource it to using yes. upwork, upwork as a resource to outsource. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and the funny thing is, is that it often is people at the top, executives at the top, who love to control sales because they can actually control, there's enough data there to control, right? Um, and so they feel like they're being smarter by being by scrutinizing those expenses, when in fact, if you turned around and asked them to scrutinize their own stuff, you know, they, they would feel like deers in headlights, you know, they would, they would be very afraid by what was being discovered. <laughs> Well, so what else is, you know, if you say 37% of the time is spent on actual selling, mm-hmm. all right, what's the other 63% being spent on? Punching, no. a, bunch, punching no. a bunch of stuff into Salesforce, right? <laughs> so that managers can report on how slow they're doing, right? Um, but increasingly, you know, a lot of the new sales technologies coming on the market are, are really, you know, especially in the sales development space, I call them mm-hmm. you know, fancy data entry methods for Salesforce. Um, you know, the, the sales development reps, they automatically integrate. They're not having to do separate entries into Salesforce most of the time. No, but there's still too much clicking, right? So for example, it can take 200 to 250 clicks just to set a first meeting, right? Think about how many times you got to click around on your computer screen, right? So at what point do we try to go, gosh, if I could reduce 250 down to 200, right? Or to, you know, 150, does that make them more efficient so they can be more effective? No, so. is that is that two fifty? Is that science or is that just you're using that as an example? No, I've I heard it from uh, the last I heard that data was from TK over at Taudap, who is um, an engineer by trade. So he's sort of obsessed with this, like you know, I, I, that's why he built Taudap was to drive efficiency, right, um, and and hopefully make the people more effective. I see the same thing happening too with um, with SalesLoft and what they've been able to accomplish. Again, these are top of the funnel tools, SDR mm-hmm. tools for people who don't know. Um, building it in such a way that the rep can come in and actually do the job that they were hired to do, instead of trying to figure out how to do the job they were hired to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a what a revelation, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah. so very interesting. Well, I mean, the last question, get back to one I'd sort of asked before, is you know, I get yeah. the the predictable revenue pipeline for let's I'll call it transactional SaaS products mm-hmm. and so on. But yeah, I've got a lot of companies listen to this that are selling. Hey, I could be selling a million dollar piece of equipment mm-hmm. with a twenty four month lead time right. know, sales cycle. Right. How do I how do I build predictability into my pipeline with that type of product? God, you know that's a great question, and, and I'll be the, this this is that part in sales training where I'm like, you know what? I don't know. 
I, you know, I don't, I, you know, I wish I had more clients who were that way, but I haven't. So I don't know. Anything I say will just be my opinion. So I'm well, very that's conscious. Okay. Of- <laughs> that's, that's why you're on the show. <laughs> so, so that's my disclaimer. Um, I think you have to go back and look at the history of your business, right? Look at your closed deals. Look at what you know about those deals and start to get the finite information that is available, who were the decision makers? What were their titles? What were their roles? At what stage did they enter into the process? Right? You literally have to build a playbook around these big deals. And it's it's interesting because it's not hard to do. It feels painful. Right? When you go back to a sales rep and say, well, tell me how you did this deal that took 24 months and you know the sales rep didn't put everything in the CRM or they don't like to necessarily give away their secret yeah, sauce. It's shocking. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it can feel painful to them, but if it's done the right way at a management level, um, and, mo- and again, I also think most sales reps know that, hey, if you're going to uncover this to help me do two more of these every year at that size of a deal, heck yeah, I'm on board. Right. Um, so I think that that's you have to start to analyze it and start to to find these very specific pieces of information that are required to close your deal. And and I think you alluded to it great. And it's something I'm going to start thinking about is what pieces of information do I need and what pieces of information does the prospect or the client need? And really, as you said, sort of create this parallel linear universe defining each deal. And I promise, if you even if you've got these big, huge deals that take 24 months, if you do that with five or six of them, you're going to start to notice patterns. Patterns matter, right? They're not always going to be correct every time. It's a hypothesis. And this right. is what I tell people all the time is that exactly. you exactly. need to define a hypothesis in your sales process. Right. And then it's up to you to either prove or disprove your hypothesis. And if you disprove your hypothesis, that's actually just as good as proving it because now you know what to adjust. And I think in sales, because we're so wired for this winning and losing thing in our head, that anytime we find something that we we create a hypothesis and then disprove it, we actually take that a little personally. Right. It's it. And, and that's OK. I mean, I think that's what what motivates a lot of people to be successful, regardless of their career. But we win. We learn more from our losses than we do from our wins. Right. You know, well, I look and, also, and also, I think that to your point about the hypothesis, which I think a great way of, of defining it is you need to be testing your hypothesis constantly all the time all the time and you need to be doing yep. it in a, in a very thoughtful and mindful way is is not just say hey once a, once a year we'll look at this is constantly because yeah, yeah i mean i it's going to change you have to be, I, yeah you have to be constantly reinventing yourself in sales and if you're not doing that then you're really going to start being in trouble here shortly yeah and that and that, now that is the value of like crm and all this data is you can go well gosh where did the slump start what happened what are we missing like there's there's more visibility into the process now than ever before um but it needs to be managed in such a way that it it doesn't become all about the sales process right right, right. um Okay, we're going to take a short break. It'll be right yep. back with my guest, Richard Harris, after the break. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. 
Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Okay, welcome back. We're moving into the last segment of the show with my guest today, Richard Harris. And I, this is where I get to pose some very standard questions that I sure. ask all my guests. And the first one is a hypothetical scenario. Uh-huh. And you're the star of this. Right. You've just been hired as VP of sales by a company whose sales have stalled out. Right. Now, CEO of the board are anxious to get the sales unstuck, back on track. And we all know sales turnaround has to start somewhere. So you're in charge. What two steps would you take your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? I would want to talk to as many customers as possible about those that like us. And I would also pick up the phone and call the people that we lost the last five or six deals, tell them I'm the new VP of sales, tell them that I want to learn what we did wrong, not to try and convince them that we're going to try and resell them. They've they've made their decision and moved on. But hopefully they'll feel altruistic in the sense of like, hey, this person really wants to improve their organization and they'll give me some feedback. Okay. I've actually had that occur to me in occasion. So, Okay. All right, the f- first two things. So you'd mm-hmm. call customers, then call lost prospects. All right, yep. good answer. Okay, so now we've got some rapid-fire questions. I mean, you can mm-hmm. give me one-word answers, or you can elaborate if you wish. And the first one is, is it easier to teach a technical non-salesperson how to sell or teach a salesperson how to become a more product-service-oriented seller? Uh, I'm going to say it's easier to teach a technical salesperson how to sell. And why? Um because sales is much more of a science than a pro, than an art these days. Uh, and I think their mindset is to, if you show them the bouncing ball and the linear equation, they'll follow it and understand it. What needs the gray area they may not always understand is the emotional component and the psychology side of it, which is something I focus on a ton. Like I talk about what are the different ego states involved in buying something, right? Whatever it is you buy, TV, shirt, house, car, There are certain emotional ego states we all go through, every single person in the world. Um, And teaching them that really enlightens them. I don't think you can take someone who's not a detail-oriented person and always convince them to want to understand the details. Okay, good answer. All right, so what's one non-business book every salesperson should read? Um, There is a book called Resilience that I've been reading um, it is written by a former Navy SEAL who is also done a ton of studying around Plato and Socrates and philosophy. And um, he, the book is written as these letters back and forth between one of his comrades who um, came back from the war and is having a hard time adjusting, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this Navy SEAL guy who has been taught to survive at all costs is freaking out because he can't adjust to the quiet life of suburbia and the challenges that exist in a marriage, you know, um, and it's a dialogue back and forth in their letters uh, where this gentleman brings in, you know, just the philosophy of things as well as his, you know, Navy SEALs budge training, like combining this stuff. And so to me, it's just a fascinating book about your resilience is what gets you through life more than any other thing. Um, And I've, I've really, you know, adopted that philosophy as I, as I had to build this business, right? It's like, you know, nobody was out there looking for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I had to, I had to sort of, you know, they say, how do you get a thick skin? And this is, this is that book I think that really helps you do it. And it's done in such a meaningful from the heart place. And it involves a 
level of psychology and understanding in a world that one would not expect it to exist in, in the military. And, and I, you know, I, I constantly read it and tweet from it all the time. Excellent. Okay. Great, great recommendation. So uh, next question then is who's your sales role model? Hmm. Lots of them. Um, probably the most usual, unusual one is Bruce Springsteen. Bruce. Um, yes, I'm a big Bruce fan. Me too. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing him August 23rd. By the time this uh, airs, I've seen him already, but just to let you know, I'm seeing him on August 23rd. Yeah, yeah, I missed him in Oakland this time. Um, the way he takes his craft, and, and again, if you're a big fan and you've read all the books, you know, I've read all these books about, you know, the guy is 60 whatever years old and putting on a three and a half hour rock and roll show. And he's not just standing there. This is no, not no, Simon no, no, Garfunkel. He, he is running <laughs> around like a chicken with his head cut off. And I've having followed his career and the amount of passion and care and understanding he takes into crafting his music and the things he's willing to try and experiment and do, um, it, it just fascinates me, right? Like, how do you build a career that's you know thirty or forty years long, right? Like, isn't that what we all want? We want to be so successful. We want to be the Bruce Springsteen of our of our genre of whatever it is we do. Um, and believe me, there are lots of people who are very good at this, so I would yeah, never This think is that. how I'm going to start introducing you from now on. Yeah, thank you. I Richard love- <laughs> Harris, the Bruce Springsteen of sales training. Oh, I love it. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That's a little humble. It's a little scary, but I like it. Thank you. So that, that, I'll, I'll stop there. All um, right. So I, I would, since you're a big fan, I'll tell you, I saw a concert at Stone Pony last year. So Oh, wow. That's Asbury awesome. Park, yeah. So. Yeah, I know. I, I've seen him in a small venue of about 2,000 people, but not the Stone Ponies. Well, that wasn't him, but I just I went there mostly because... Oh, just to see a show. Yeah, I would do the same. Show there. Yeah. If I was in New Jersey, I would do the same thing. Yeah, so. Uh, all right, last question for you. It's a great segue because it's the standard last question. So uh, what music's on your playlist these days? Uh, so Springsteen's on my playlist a lot, a lot of the time. Um I also listen to uh, Maroon 5 and 5 for Fighting and sort of um, that 90s guitar mm. rock stuff. I'm a big Guns N' Roses fan, although I think they're trying to gouge their fans for the latest round of concerts. Yeah, um, and, and don't tweet that Axel's too fat. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, he doesn't <laughs> like that. Um, although I would love to get the cease and desist letter, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You'd frame that for sure. I would write a, I would write a sales post on it. Right. Uh, figure out some way to spin it. Um, <laughs> let's see what else. I do a little bit of Neil Diamond these days. Um, doing a little bit of reggae lately. It's summertime out here in California, so a little reggae is always nice to hear. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. Well, good. Good stuff. All right, thank well, Richard, you. I want to thank you for being on the show. Oh, Andy, this was a pleasure. Really a lot of fun. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, great. So tell people they can find out more about you. Please. Oh, uh, yeah. So you can find me at theharrisconsultinggroup.com. Um, you can also find me at Sales Hacker. Uh, easiest way to get a hold of me is rharris415, R-H-A-R-R-I-S-415 on Twitter. Probably the fastest way to get a response out of me. Um, and of course, you know, LinkedIn, you know, if you're on business, you're on LinkedIn. So I'm sure you can find me there. Great. Well, thanks a lot. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast a part of your daily routine, whether you're listening on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Richard Harris, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. 
For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.